0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This episode of the China Power podcast will feature one of five debates we held about China during our 2023 conference this fall. Each debate involves two leading experts taking a different position on one aspect of Chinese power. Happy holidays, and thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with new guests in January 2024. So we're ready to start our uh, first debate of five debate discussions. And the topic of this one, uh, the proposition is, the United States and China are making progress in creating a floor, in in quotations, in U.S.-China relations to manage tensions and crises. Um, Of course, Eli touched a little bit on this during the Q&A. But this is an uh, increasingly important question, given the, um, what we're seeing right now in US-China relations. As you recall, uh, last fall, the meeting between uh, President Biden and uh, President Xi Jinping uh, in Bali, Indonesia, where there was some agreement on, uh, on both sides to find ways to more responsibly manage competition between the United States and China. And since then, we had several incidences, including the uh, surveillance balloon incident, as well as um, uh, China's continued use of uh, large-scale military uh, exercises around Taiwan. And at the same time, we also saw uh, about mid this year an intensification of U.S. diplomacy towards China, a number of high-level visits to China. So as we look at all of all of these developments together, um, an interesting question to ask is, given, given these high-level visits and given the direction of the relationship are we beginning to see a floor? So I've uh, invited two leading experts to debate this. But before we uh, ask them to give their thoughts, I would actually like to poll the audience to get your views on this. Uh, so next slide, please. So um, this is a poll that we would love you for you to participate in. There's two ways to participate. One is if you take out your phone and you scan the QR code. If you don't know how to scan a QR code, that's not an issue. You can also go to the URL, which is PollEV.com slash China Power. Uh, and then once you get to the poll, you'll be able to select agree or disagree. We'll just give folks um, about a minute or two to vote. And please feel free to vote both in person and online. And we'll. Um, as we're waiting to po- for the poll results to come in, I do wanna take the time to introduce our distinguished speakers. So to my left, who will be arguing for the proposition is Rick Waters, Mr. Rick Waters, managing director for Eurasia Group's China practice. Prior to joining Eurasia Group, Rick was, State De- uh, was the State Department's top China official for 27 years, a very short period of time. And he oversaw the creation of the Office of China Coronation informally known as China House, and served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for China and Taiwan. Arguing against the proposition is Mr. Dan Blumenthal, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Dan has served in and advised the U.S. government on China issues for more than a decade, including serving as Senior Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia at the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, So I really appreciate both Rick and Dan uh, joining us, and I know there will be some disclaimers in terms of we did ask them to take different sides in this debate, and I think their views are probably a bit more nuanced than what they might be presenting to us today. But with that, let's take a look at what we're seeing from the audience poll. It seems uh, the poll has more or less stabilized, and... And uh, I think Ricky will have a very difficult position. About <laughs> 16% of the audience believe that we have created a floor, and 84% of the audience believe that we have not created a floor. Um,
1: if it goes the other
0: way. It means, I, it means I messed up. <laughs> yeah. So, if, so uh, Rick might have an easier position if he can. If we come out closer to 50-50, then um, maybe his uh, p- points were relatively convincing. Uh, I would also want to show you, before we go into the debate, a poll that we conducted on Twitter for uh, between September 27th and October 4th. Largely the same, but a bit more equally, relatively equally spread with 65.4% that uh, disagree with the proposition and 34.6% that agree with the proposition. So with the uh, difficult task of arguing against what the audience believe, let me actually turn the floor to Rick now. (laughs)
2: thanks Bonnie. Um, you know, Bonnie, who's a great friend, she promised me that i I would uh, have the opportunity to come here and speak to all of you today, which I'm delighted to do. I thought after leaving government I was going to get to not have to defend the administration positions, and now, oh well, so here goes. Um, it, look, it's a privilege to be up here with dan who i've I've respected his writings for a long time on these issues and and so I thought what I would do in framing this debate is just to talk a little bit at the outset about what the administration thinks it is trying to achieve. Um, I think what it does not think it's trying to achieve by setting a floor is to change China's policies or strategic intentions. I don't think that the goal is to trade away basic elements of the US-China policy or its intentions. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think there's a a very deep recognition that this is going to be a a long-lasting strategic competition and it's not going to be characterized by some decisive transformative end state. It's going to be a steady state, um, a multi-domain competition that is intensifying and that requires a degree of careful management through both the, the hard and the soft tools of diplomacy um, to avoid unintended conflict. And so I think in a way, when you look at the definition of a floor, this this I think is where we should be precise. I think the administration has two basic goals here. One is, avoiding unintended conflict it's not it's not to say that you know at all cost but you don't want to have conflict in areas that you don't desire you don't want it to be a result of accidents or miscalculation that's one goal but i actually think if you look at the question of setting a floor that is that is not the only goal the the other real reason the administration is focused on this is that it is necessary in order to pursue a strategic competition policy that seeks to shape China's strategic environment around it in each of the key domains, it is a necessary condition to be seen as managing the relationship with China responsibly, or at least being the party that is trying to do so. If, if the Americans are seen as reckless, it makes it harder in democratic politics in other countries, and even sometimes in other politics, to align with the U.S. on interests that that are shared to create that shaping coalition, the goal of which, again, is not to necessarily change China or its strategy, but to raise the cost of individual policies and therefore deter them or affect them. So if you keep those two goals in mind, setting a floor is about avoiding unintended conflict, but also creating an enabling environment for the shaping effort. That, to me, is definitionally the, the... the benchmark against which our, our clearly rigged poll should be judged. Um, so let's look at these two things in reverse order. I mean, I think we can argue pretty effectively that, that the shaping effort is is proceeding apace. You know, in two two short years, with I think a lot of bipartisan consensus, and to be fair, building in large measure off of some elements of the previous administration's policy, you have a number of things that that are moving in, in each of the key domains. And I'll just quickly simplify them to the the global order, including values and informational dimensions, um, economic and technology competition, and then security. And I'm not gonna belabor these points. We can go into them in the the Q&A, but let's at least consider how that necessary condition of being seen, being perceived as trying to manage the US-China relationship responsibly is 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 an enabling proposition to what has happened in in the global order sort of broadly written uh, domain you know two years ago when the administration came in, four of the fifteen u n specialized agencies were headed by chinese nationals. that number has already been cut in half and i think beyond the the u n and u n uh, system itself you have a very rapid emergence of a number of uh, new structures or the strengthening and repurposing of other structures in ways that are very fundamental to um, the U.S. pursuit of strategic competition. You can look at the revitalization of the G7 and its uh, greater activism in shaping agendas on everything from cross-strait deterrence and peace and stability to economic coercion. You can look at the AUKUS Alliance um, you can look at the, the fifth leader-level summit of the Quad and the expansion and diversification of that agenda, and the truly remarkable developments between Seoul, Tokyo, and now at Camp David, a new trilateral process that, that will hopefully institutionalize a different level of cooperation between the three capitals. You've got a lot of active, active uh, activity in the Pacific Islands, including the two uh, summit-level meetings, that have occurred. And so again, I'm not going to go through all of the lists, but I think, you know, we get a sense of the evolving geometry of the international order and some element of which I really do think requires national governments perceiving that the Americans are not being reckless in order to align and support these initiatives. And I think in the values domain and in the defense of democracy here, um, the nice thing about being out of government is I can be honest now, you know, I think the, the, the challenges are much, um, more profound. And I do worry that progress in this area is is lagging, but I do think that the bipartisan Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and its impact on everything from supply chains to awareness of the forced labor problem is quite profound both both here at home and with uh, allies and partners abroad. So that's the global order dimension that has been enabled by the perception, whether or not it's been fully successful of setting a floor. In the economic and tech realm, I think we have um, you know, a number of policies we're all aware of. But I think here, the key point I would make is that the administration hasn't traded anything away in its pursuit of of a bilateral effort to set a floor. I mean, the tariff structure is still in place. It is contributing to debates in C-suites about de-risking from China. The the advanced technology realm is an area where competition has been taken to a whole different level with the advanced computing restrictions uh, 12 months ago. And you know, if you believe the press reports, forthcoming modifications that could be upon us shortly. They're the, the legislation that's come forward, um, CHIP's IRA, the Infrastructure Act. But I think it's in the multilateral realm where we often, we often overlook how profound some of the changes have been between the U.S. and the EU through the Trade and Technology Council and now with India um, in the critical and emerging tech realm. So you get the picture. There, there's a lot going on that's enabled by a perception of responsible pursuit of strategic competition. And in the security realm, I think Eli touched on a lot of this already. So I'm just going to skip then to the second reason that one seeks to set a floor with China. And I think this is where we can end by having you know a good debate about how successful the administration has or has not been I, I think it's a bit simplistic to to believe that you don't have diplomacy with your adversaries. In fact, I think in some ways it's even more critical than with your friends. Um, but I think there are two points I would make just generally about the type of diplomacy that you have with the Chinese in this environment. One is that it's it's not, it doesn't look like the diplomacy with China 10 or 20 years ago. It's not big dialogue structures. It's, you know, certainly not dinner parties. It's the, the use of unique features of the Chinese system, primarily senior-level summit engagement with President Xi to then empower specific channels for specific reasons. And those reasons can often be extremely modest. It can simply be as modest as trying to avoid the Chinese system making up its own story of what Washington intends. And that, that, that goal is actually quite consequential, as we know, Just three short years ago, the Chinese convinced themselves somehow that the U.S. was on the verge of a sneak attack. You need channels to make sure that the other side is not making up its own definition of your intentions. So when I talk about the the processes by which a floor is being created, um, it is admittedly not a very durable foundation, but it is a necessary one that requires the specific empowerment of the Chinese leadership through dedicated channels that, again, are not dinner parties or you know scenes from the Netflix show The Diplomat, but more like um, two divorce lawyers fighting over how to not divide the kids physically. That's really the goal here, and I think if you if you agree with that very modest goal, and I think you know that my own sort of personal view would be that the administration has made some modest but fragile success. And it does not last for long periods before it's disrupted by a balloon or by external events. But the the intention is necessary. And sometimes after a, a an abrupt decline, things stabilize for a period. And that, that may be the best you can get. So I'll, I'll just end by saying that I think we have to really think carefully about what we mean by making progress and the definition of the floor and the purpose of this concept. Because I think if, if it really, to me, the debate is almost a definitional one. If you want to come to a conclusion about whether and how to judge the administration's progress thus far. So I'll, I'll wrap up there. And, uh, thanks again, Bonnie.
0: Thank you, Rick. A very a powerful opening statement. So Dan now the floor is yours
1: and, um, Thank you very much. I'm I'm honored to be on uh, the stage with, with Rick, who's had a distinguished, uh, uh, not yet done, obviously, but a distinguished career in, in government and in China policy, and, and uh, just honored to be on this uh, panel with him. I think um, there's a lot I agree with, but I think the uh, bottom line is um, Rick is sort of making the case for me as to why we're not close to a floor. And, and let, let me explain why. Because, there's three, three reasons, in my view. One is she doesn't want a floor. He, he has uh, prepared uh, China for what he calls the great and protracted struggle against the United States. What he wants is a sort of blanket acknowledgement of his core interests, and then perhaps we can talk. Uh, uh, China doesn't believe we want a floor, and that's uh, because of some of the initiatives that Rick so articulately described. And, uh, finally, we don't really want a floor. Uh, besides that, we're close to a floor. Uh, we, we, what we really want to do, and I think Rick described it, is undermine China's attempts to expand its power and undo the current world order. We don't want a war. And I think we're trying uh, hard to avoid a war, but we're not quite ready for a floor, in my view. And we're not being completely candid about that, I think, even uh, amongst ourselves. So, uh, let me go to point one. She doesn't want a floor. Um, so despite these kind of near-term economic difficulties, clearly coming out of the 20th Party Congress, she is, is feeling very confident, uh, you know, these uh, speeches about under, undergoing changes, great changes unseen in a century. Uh, he really believes the West is an inevitable and terminal decline. Uh, the, the greatest feature right now of international politics is chaos. But he said, you know, essentially, that uh, in this period of chaos, China can achieve great victories. And I don't think he leaves any doubt about what he means by great victories. It's great victories in his uh, struggle with the United States. Um, so he's, he's really preparing China internally and externally for more what he calls struggle, more protracted struggle. This will be a period of struggle. Uh, the word struggle is used uh, so, so often in, in uh Everything from the party charter to the 20th Party Congress report and 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 so forth. Prepare for struggle. So he believes we're in a period of struggle, not in a period of negotiating uh, floors. And he believes we're sort of like this old lion who's about to die and has a couple more faint roars in it, and maybe can cause some danger. Uh, Not as good an analogy as a divorce lawyer's uh, cut it, you know, but but. You know, but we're really kind of this. We're, we're we're on our last legs. We're dangerous, but we're on our last legs. But he can endlessly seize new and greater victories, as as he said in this period. Uh, and um, this is what getting good at struggle uh, has looked like. Uh, you heard some of it from Eli uh, Ratner, which is more. Uh, this is an opportune time to flex military muscles in East Asia, purposefully, purposefully take greater military risks. Even seek military crises uh, so that you can uh, reset uh, re, you know reset what the new normal is you know and and the defense minister of China famously asked you know why are you even in our periphery to begin with you know what are we talking about? Why do we need to talk about uh, floors or guardrails get out of our periphery and then we 'll talk uh, the other the other ways we're looking at great struggle right now is um, You know, this is a time uh, that Xi Jinping is announcing new initiatives to displace uh, U.S. initiatives that buttress the world order. You know, he announced the Global Security Initiative with a very clear, um, you know, very clear target of the United States world order saying, you know, the United States world order is, is what causes wars. You know, the expansion of NATO, block politics, hegemonism, Cold War mentalities, that's what causes wars. He's going around the world saying, essentially... You know, uh, I, I support Russia. Russia had no um, choice but to counterattack because the United States used the Ukraine as a pawn, warning other countries, including Taiwan, not to be used as a pawn. Uh, and he's making that case right now, and he's making that case aggressively, and he sees this opportunity with the, with the war in Ukraine as a way to pull more countries uh, into uh, away from the U.S. orbit. Uh, he sees this as a time to uh, broker such meetings as those between the Saudis and Iranians, uh, it, it very much you know pointing out to us that we're uh, weakened in, in the Gulf and we made mistakes and, and China is going to be the new power broker, Shora Putin host Assad host Abbas, you know challenging us in in every way possible everywhere in the world uh, at this moment. Uh, there are just very few signs that that she is impressed by our power and sees our attempt uh, at guardrails at anything but uh, the sign of kind of uh, the last gasp of, 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 of the lion, so to speak. Um, number two is China doesn't believe we want a floor. And I think that's where Rick, I think, made the case very well. When, when, when China hears uh, you know, Secretary Blinken speak about shaping the environment through which China will rise, what they hear is you're containing us.
3: That's what they hear.
1: And uh, and they say stop containing us, and it is absolutely true. The administration has made great progress in this, what I would call containment coalition, or at least containment of its expansion coalition. You know, uh, the South Korea Japan trilat is is a great accomplishment. Uh, AUKUS is a great accomplishment. Uh, the fact that NATO is more interested than it was before in relations with Japan. And there's some something of a of a global coalition forming, uh, you know, that is identifying China as a systemic rival. You know, uh, I think that really is the, the beginning of a counter coalition against China, and that's how China sees it, and that's how we see it. Um, and and so uh, they don't believe we want a floor. And when Xi Jinping uh, met with Anthony Blinken, you know, he was very much in a mood to try to purposely humiliate him in terms of. Uh, the way he uh, arranged the seating and so forth, and you know that's very important, as all of you know, in Chinese strategic culture. Just who who is uh, coming as the ardent suitor, who's coming as the as the visitor, uh, who's coming as uh, the one making requests of of the other one, and and how are we going to be seated? We're not going to be seated as equal, uh, you know. Whereas in contrast uh, to his meetings with. Uh, Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Henry Kissinger really made a point of of, of downplaying and downgrading his visit with Tony Blinken, but he chided him and he said, "Competition among great powers does not conform to the trend of the times, let alone solve America's own problems." It was it was a lecture. Don't come to me with you know uh, uh, talking about competition and guardrails. Stop competing. It's not in your interests. And, and inevitably you will lose. That's, that's the other big message, inevitably you will lose. He talks about in very ideological terms that, that socialism will prevail over capitalism and so forth. This is not a man who is interested in, in seeking a floor. Uh, Wang Yi uh, you know, told uh, Secretary Blinken, there's no way to turn back the wheel of history. In other words, the wheel of history is turning towards us in China. You know, don't, don't you know, you're coming here as a supplicant, fine, but, you know, stop this competition. Here's the price, if you want to really talk to us. We have a price. And the price is stop hyping the China threat theory and the technological and other sanctions against us. Oppose Taiwan independence. Stop interfering in China's affairs. Now, those are not things that we can do or are interested in doing. Not, not a single one of them. In fact, we're doing the opposite. And and that will bring me to the, my next point, which is we're not really interested in the floor, at least at not the price that's on the table. Uh, and of course, um, Gong before he disappeared, uh, you know, started railing against guardrails, railing against the guardrails and saying, guardrails, are you expecting us not to respond to attacks and slander? Now that's the kind of mood that Chinese high diplomats are in, which is you're you're coming to us to talk about guardrails while you slander us and you contain us and you and you interfere in our affairs and you don't oppose Taiwan independence. In fact, you support these separatists and so forth. And so that finally brings me to the to the point three, which is we don't really want a floor, at least not at the price that's that's given to us. Uh, we're not ready to back off from the diplomatic successes that uh that that rick uh, rightfully pointed out there're quite a few diplomatic successes. Uh we still have a lot of work to do to continue to build a coalition that counters China's aggression that undermines its uh, malign influence. Uh we're not interested in meeting uh Tony uh, uh sorry Wang Yi's demands. Uh you know, uh, I would add to the other um to the besides the diplomatic and geopolitical groupings that uh, that that uh, that, that uh, we talked about before that are very much seen as a containment coalition and, and in some ways are very much a containment coalition. I would add that um, the technology restrictions, you know, the October seventh, twenty twenty two technology restrictions, really uh, uh, really harm the the Chinese semiconductor industry. Right? That that's the Chinese view that as a as a hostile act. Now these are necessary acts that we have to take, in my view. But uh, they're not viewed uh, as confidence-building measures, as guardrails, or as floors by the Chinese, nor do we really view them as such either. Our security assistance to Taiwan is as strong as it ever has been. Uh, we're not uh, in the business of, of you know, opposing Taiwan independence. Uh, you heard from Eli all the different things we're doing around the region militarily to better posture ourselves. If I was a Chinese strategic planner, I would say, well, they're, they're really... Uh, you know they're really tightening the noose. I mean they're really containing us. Uh, so um, I don't think you know for for any of these reasons that we're close to a floor. I think that um, I don't think we I don't think we really truly want to be. If we if we were candid, I think we are making uh, attempts. You know we're sending cabinet officials to China. Uh, you know to make these kinds of attempts, but they don't they don't return with very much. They don't return with very much except for these lectures. And, uh, and these kinds of, uh, you know, the ire of the Chinese, you know, stop doing these things to us that are attempting to contain us. And ultimately, Xi Jinping's very strategy, his very interpretation of, geo- of the geopolitical time, is that it's time for struggle. Uh, the ascension of his loyalists and his security services uh, in the 20th Party Congress is meant to batten down the hat- hatches for struggle. He talks about struggle. Uh, we will see more dangerous military exercises. We we, we won't see talks between the PLA uh, and the U.S. and that's very purposeful. That's because uh, the way the Chinese think that we will stop our operations around China is if uh, they continue to behave in a manner so risky that we have to back off, uh, or else we will get into some kind of unwanted conflict. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dan. Also a very forceful argument of um, why she doesn't want a floor and the United States doesn't want a floor, but maybe um, before I turn to Rick for uh, Rick, your b- rebuttals, uh, can I just ask for a quick clarification of what you mean by floor, Dan? I think you were using floor interchangeable with uh, confidence building measures, guardrails, basically ways in which you, uh, the competition would be limited, but I just want to make sure that we get your definition too
1: absolutely so um I, I was taking the definition that um that I, I thought was that that essentially we can negotiate a position with china uh that uh that uh where the relationship doesn't descend any further into sort of spirals of tension and uh, open up crisis communication and confidence building channels such that uh things like um, the balloon incident and, and other incidents, military incidents around uh, China, uh, you know, should something get out of control, we have a way to talk to the, the PLA. Uh, and ge- generally speaking, and, and a, a loosening of tensions a sort of detente.
0: Great. Thank you. Uh, so I think we have two slightly different definitions of how to ed- uh, understand the floor. But, um hopefully, in the rebuttals we'll we'll start converging the two definitions and we 'll have more uh, more of a um, direct response uh, from both ends so, Rick, over to you
2: thanks you know, I think Dan makes a lot of good points in his presentation um, i 'll come back to just a few thoughts real briefly. One is you know again, I said at the beginning uh, nobody's going to make the argument that Xi Jinping's going to change his views I mean I you know spend too much time reading people 's daily and Get great enjoyment out of the uh, the daily imploring to struggle, um, the the speeches about securitization of the economy. I mean, these are these are real things, and no one is going to debate that. But what I do think is a little bit different, at least in the short term, is that um, things in China are difficult for the leadership right now. And the, I don't expect the rhetoric to change the long term strategy. But you know, the short term strategy right now is to put out fires and deal with a mess inside the leadership. Um, I don't want to take that too far. I think we all have to be modest in our understanding of particularly the inner circle leadership dynamics. But this this is an environment in which I would imagine if you're sitting in Zhongnanhai, you're you're getting frustrated at being blamed for a bunch of legacy economic issues that your, your own policy prescriptions are not going to solve. And your new state counselors are running into problems, shall we say, that that are taking up a lot of your time as well. And, you know, so in a way, the fact that the leadership may not want new external headaches in the short term is a source of modest leverage. I don't think we should overstate that. But I think where you see this playing out, and it's, you know, it's subtle, but it's also in the language, is that 10 years ago, you know, when you would prepare a U.S.-China meeting, there would be a very maximalist definition of what a floor entailed. It would be like a G2 condominium arrangement, new model of great power relations. Let's collude together to solve the world's problems by one side's definition, perhaps. And, you know, in a way, I think because of um, the domestic challenges on the Chinese side this year, I think it is possible to at least posit that the, the price has come down. If you look at the Xinhua statement after the Bali summit between the presidents last year, Yes, it's true that, that um, the Chinese still complained about the idea of guardrails, which they think will, you know, as they often put it, it will allow the Americans to have seatbelts so they can drive faster in strategic competition. But they didn't challenge the notion of setting a floor. And the language, the older maximalist language has started to recede. The, in some ways, they have actually internalized and repurposed aspects of the U.S. propositions that focus much more modestly on the goals I laid out at the top. Avoiding unintentional conflict is one of them. Um, and you know, I think that I don't want to overstate the point, but I do want to just point out that I think if you look carefully at the language, there are hints about a desire on the Chinese side for short-term stability. But I think Dan is absolutely right to say that that desire for stability comes at a very with very little willingness to pay, pay much political cost, and that's that's a real challenge. The second thing is that, um, you know, I think there there are some indications of where a floor is being set in practical ways. Um, I mean, it is true that with the balloon uh, and with the, the Speaker Pelosi's visit last year, you know, mill mill channels were frozen. They're gradually reopening quietly. But I've never really viewed the mill mill channels as the ones that will play a role much of a role anyway on issues like that. I I was in Beijing for both the uh, accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in 1998 in Belgrade and for the EP3 crisis in 2001. And, you know, watching these those chapters in history from the sidelines or from a very junior role in the embassy, it was clear that the only channels that will ever exist in a crisis will likely be the ones approved by the party after they have deliberated the principles of their response, and those will probably be foreign ministry channels or maybe back channels. But the PLA is very seldom the channel for resolution or management of a severe crisis like that. And that was the same pattern that played out during the period of the balloon when the, the primary channels were between um, senior officials at the State Department of the NSC and then Ambassador Chin Gong, or in the field between Ambassador Nick Burns and the foreign ministry. And so You know, again, it's it's a very thin floor. I don't want to make more of it than there is, but that that that's just a steady state of the relationship that will persist. Um, I do think that in some other areas of the relationship, you know, if you look at what we mean by floor, there there is a risk that China will overreact to restrictions or policies that it misunderstands, and you know, technology is a great example where. Coming into this year, I think there was a bedrock conviction that the the U.S. was embarked on an all-out containment effort to go all the way as far as it could in every aspect of advanced technology. And yet I do think some of the modest channels that have been set up between commerce and their counterparts have started to explain where the boundaries may be. They have shown there is a pathway for Chinese firms that are not involved in civil-military integration to come off of entities lists. And some of that has been recycled, uh, although it wasn't really noticed because of the uh, the controversy over the new Huawei phone. You know, it's been recycled even into the official Xinhua releases, where they take Gina Raimondo's assurances that the goal is not to block China's economic rise, and they start to put those out to their own populations. So again, these are very modest modest um, areas in which, on the military side, on the crisis management side, and on the technology side. There are indications of a sort of short-term stabilization. But the final thing I'll say is that, um, you know, I think part of, part of why I'm so focused on the definitional question here is that even implicit in the premise of this debate, I don't know that, you know, I would really agree with the idea that the goal is to manage tensions. There are going to be tensions. Um, that's fine. The real issue here is to make sure that where there are tensions, they are a product of deliberate strategy and that they don't produce unintended escalation or crisis. And I think if by that goal, uh, by, that, by that definition, we look back at the last year, I still think on balance the, the strategy has been successful. Because if you look at what, what it would look like without channels, without an effort to, to actively manage, and without some near-term tactical desire from the Chinese for stability, I think what would have been possible were spirals in areas of the relationship that we could have hardly predicted or foreseen, but that could have been consequential and that could have undermined all of what I started off with at the top. The effort to, to convince allies in the region and elsewhere that the U.S. is trying to manage the relationship responsibly.
0: Thank you, Rick. Before I turn to Dan, let me just uh, make sure that we're capturing your definition of um, the floor. You you mentioned that it's about avoiding unintentional conflict. And then I would add maybe the examples you raised later. There was also another addition to your definition, which was it seemed to be reducing PRC misperception and inflation of the U.S. threat.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think we could even add a third part to it, which is um, creating the perception with allies and partners that you were trying to do this because that that may not mean that you've achieved the goal, it might just mean that you're not the one blamed when things go wrong.
0: Thank you with that, Dan. over to you
1: um, again i i I just don't see even according to the, those definitions uh room for very much progress. you know, I think what we're going to see in the next uh, few years uh particularly if the election goes in a certain way on Taiwan is actually uh, more attempts by China to actually deliberately create crisis like a crisis like environment around the Taiwan Strait. To uh, you know when you when you uh, puncture uh, you know, is and median lines at this at this rate, uh, purposefully deliberately as part of your strategy of cognitive warfare, um, you know you're not looking to. Uh, tamp down military crisis. You're trying to say that if the other party actually reacts, uh, there will be a crisis. So don't react, right? So I think this is structurally a clash of grand strategies. And I think if you, if you take a Cold War analogy, um, first Cold War analogy, I know you have a debate later. I just weighed in on your debate later about, uh, about the Cold War. But, the Soviets and, and the U.S. could get into some form of a detente and, and, and tactical floors and managing tensions when they both decided they weren't going to go to war over Germany. But we're not even there with China. We, and China, you know, in our view, still very much is holding out the possibility of going to war with Taiwan, against Taiwan. So uh, we have a lot of work to do to stabilize deterrence before uh, we can start to really—the Chinese have to take us extremely seriously when we, uh, when we say uh, we're going to uh, deter, deter them from taking actions we don't like and contain their expansionism before they really get into talks with us about some of the issues that uh, Rick pointed out to. So, you know, I don't—you know, I, I think we're in a protracted period of crises on purpose. Uh, the Chinese want to create crises— The U.S. uh, grand strategy always, which is a soft form of containment of China, and the Chinese know it, always uh, holds out the possibility for for talks and for crisis management, but that's just simply not how the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping sees it. Again, the position is stop doing what you're doing, stop interfering in our internal affairs, stop exercising in this way around uh, the region, uh, you know, stop. Um, uh, you know, stop trying to contain us. Stop reposturing. Uh, stop interfering in, in in Taiwan. Stop supporting the separatists. And then we'll talk uh, about a floor. Stop competing, even. And we're just simply not prepared to stop competing. In fact, I think that uh, in in response to many of the actions, I think that Chinese will take uh, throughout the from the South China Sea. Uh, from the South China Sea to the taiwan strait we 're actually going to see more u s security assistance, more as Eli Ratner said today, more deterrence, and the Chinese are going to read that as, uh, as as containment and they 're going to keep lecturing us about how we have to first stop the containment, and then maybe possibly we can talk about uh, you know managing tensions finally, you know, i, I don 't think the Chinese you know the october seventh two thousand twenty two uh, actions we took yeah we really harmed china's semiconductor industry now i'm i'm for the action right we really uh, have a new policy of keeping certain uh, capabilities out of chinese hands writ large not just the military's hands china's hands uh, they they can't view that as anything but a a a the beginning of a set of actions that that are coming that are meant to contain and suppress their economy—that's that's how they see them. Now we have to do these things, but I don't think you know. Again, if I was a Chinese strategic planner, I would uh, see it as anything but the U.S. moving to a full uh, economic containment policy. And in fact, that's that's how the Chinese actually see it. And part of the reason, you know, even in the economic sphere, where uh, you know we sent a couple cabinet officials to China without uh, without much to show for it. Uh, And again, you know, sending four cabinet officials to China without a reciprocal visit, the Chinese will not read that as uh, two equal parties trying to negotiate crisis management mechanisms. They will read that as uh, the U.S. being an ardent suitor uh, who will keep coming and keep asking China for things, even if they uh, get turned down. Uh, But again, I wouldn't, you know, if I were if I were China, I completely understand why they read Uh, our policy as one of economic suppression. And the Chinese now have a policy through dual circulation and through uh, other means of of trying to protect themselves and insulate themselves as what they think is going to become uh, even stronger measures to contain their economy and suppress their economy. So even in areas where you would think that there could be more of a detente uh, in commercial relations, I think the Chinese also view that as another area of struggle as another area of tension and another area where it's difficult to, to, to build confidence and uh, you know to manage tensions and crisis and create that floor.
0: Thank you very much. I think there's just so much to unpack. Uh, I guess I'll start with two more fundamental questions and then um, maybe open this up for questions from the audience because I'm sure folks will have a lot to also ask. Um, I guess two fundamental, maybe related question is, do we need a floor? I think I think the two of you are coming on opposite end, but I, I think it would just be nice to clarify, do we need a floor in U.S.-China relations? And um, I think, Dan, you used the term, uh, a stabilized deterrence. So if we view a floor as stabilizing deterrence, do we need that? And, and, and Rick, you mentioned um, the that, you know, some, it is, what, what did you say? You said that tensions are fine and some of them, as long as they're a product of deliberate US strategy, right? So both of you are recognizing moving forward that we will have tensions and there will be crises. There will be much more in, um, friction in the relationship. But as we move forward to that, do we need anything to stabilize that or anything to set some boundaries? Let me just start with that first question, thanks. Whoever wants to go first. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We get you off off the hot seat. Um, we 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 do need it. We do need a floor. We do need diplomacy. We do need uh, we do need um, to negotiate ways to manage tensions and and to avoid uh, to avoid conflict. But we're not close to being in a position to actually negotiate that. There's a lot more work. To, the Chinese will take us seriously uh, once and if. Uh, we complete the work that Eli Ratner was talking about in terms of uh, setting up a new deterrent posture in the region uh, we haven 't even we haven 't even discussed the level of um, instability the chinese are are introducing into the system with their nuclear plans that Eli ratner meant uh, meant to uh, you know and th- there 's a reason that that they 're not transparent about it it's it's it 's meant. You know, rather than creating confidence, it's, it's meant to undermine confidence. A you know, Chinese grand strategy, Chinese military strategy is, is very much meant to undermine confidence and to keep us on our heels. Now, the answer to that, the way to get to a stabilized deterrence, is to really finish the work uh, that we've been talking about and Rick art- articulated uh, earlier in, in this panel, which is um, these these various... Uh, coalitions that we have negotiated have to really uh, take hold and be strengthened and turn into something more than the you know something even stronger. So the Quad, AUKUS, uh, the trilateral, uh, some of the other mini minilaterals, uh, more credible combat power has to be in the region, as as Eli Ratner mentioned, in ways that the Chinese really feel like it's too costly uh, to continue behaving in this fashion. Uh, we need to uh, really deal with the extended deterrence issue that the Chinese are trying to break uh, with the Japanese and the, and the South Koreans. Uh, and we need to change the perception fundamentally in China that we're in terminal decline and that we uh, are in a period where, you know, the next 10 years or so, they can just wait and, and they will inevitably rise and be in a stronger position. Uh, we, we ought not go running to China seeking to taunt when they're not looking uh, to reciprocate. You know, they'll they'll talk to us when they feel like they have something to talk to us about. And really that, at the end of the day, uh, means continuing the work of building these alliance coalitions, building up the military power, continuing to uh, do the kinds of things we did October 7th, 2022, keeping uh, high technology out of China's hands. Uh, it won't be pleasant, There'll be more conflictual relations during that period of time, but I think we will get to a stabilized deterrence if we, uh, if we, if we take these uh, stronger measures to undermine their confidence, to, um, uh, you know, contain their expansion and and to subvert their attempts to, um, uh, you know, subvert their attempts to undo the world order. Well, i
2: I finding myself in too much agreement with Dan, so I'll accentuate the differences just for the fun of it. Um, no, I think, I think there are some areas where, you know, to be honest, I think this is where the, the definitional struggle actually comes in. I mean, if you think of, let's quantify this a little bit. Where, where have floors been set? I mean, you look back at, you know, February of last year, Xi Jinping and Putin standing together at the Winter Olympics just before the Ukraine invasion. And the, the all the no limits partnership that is announced and the signal that must have sent to the Chinese system that thou shalt help Putin and Russia in the war effort. You know, you fast forward only three short months and US European and partner diplomacy succeeded, I think, in setting a floor in the sense that China did not do what many feared at the time and what I think, you know, has been in the public domain. A lot of intelligence professionals and uh, thoughtful analysts were worried might happen, which was that China would translate no limits into provision of lethal support or significant efforts to undermine and evade sanctions. And so I think that's an example of where you know, I would actually agree with Dan in many of the um, strategic and hard military realms. It's it's necessary to build the hard tools of deterrence before we will get to progress in those areas. But in other elements of the relationship in the diplomatic realm, um, most prominently, I do think there are areas in which um, – Partial floors have been established that have proven durable even through the the balloon chapter, and so we have to maybe quantify a bit. I think going forward, and this is where I'll leave off, Bonnie. You know, I think let's look. Let's look at what happens when the administration rolls out whatever the new export restrictions are, the modifications to the October twenty twenty two advanced computing restrictions. You know, how will that affect? who China sends to APEC. I mean, there are questions out there that might be the metric that we can't predict right now. Um, But I I do think that um, one of the questions that I will be looking at the most closely is there has been a bit of a modest floor of sorts in how the Chinese play in our domestic politics. And you know, in 2016, there were debates in Beijing when I was there about should they go a bit step a bit beyond the propaganda onslaught, the generalized effort to erode perceptions of U.S. democracy to actually play in the Russian-like interference game. I hope that doesn't happen, but I think that there are floors in some of those areas about how China plays in our politics that, that could be fragile but still persist.
0: Great. Thank you very much, uh, Rick and Dan. I do want to make sure that I'm leaving some time for a Q&A. So we have about uh, 15 minutes for questions before we will go return back to our final poll of the audience. So please raise your hand if you have a question, and we will have rotating uh, microphones for those who are here in person.
3: Hi, thanks. uh, Chase Winner with Energy Intelligence. Um, Can you talk a little bit about sort of the geoeconomic competition between the two sides. Um, obviously, since we cover energy, I'm interested in the sort of oil sector, but also um, the renewables with, you know, the U.S. industrial policy. And you see now, for example, um, in Europe, sort of a backlash against uh, Chinese EVs. Um, so yeah, you could just stress sort of how this economic uh, tensions play into the political ties as well.
0: And maybe how economic tensions relate to floor <laughs> in U.S.-China relations too.
1: Well, I'll, I'll uh, thank you for the question. You know, I'll, I'll restate what I said before. You know, economics used to be the area where we we thought um, you know it's kind of a pressure valve, uh, a place where we could. Uh, find agreement where the the two sides could 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 trade freely and and commercial ties and so forth would um, you know would would provide a distraction from from other forms of competition but i just don't think that's true anymore and this sort of goes to the centrality of my argument. i don't think it was you know I, 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 it was it was the chinese that really started the the economic warfare you know going back to it depends where you want to start. I mean, you can you can start with, uh, you know, with uh, not fulfilling their obligations under the WTO. You can start with 2006 Indigenous Innovation Plan. You can start with, um, you know, Made in China 2025, you know, and, and and so forth, which came out in 2015. You know, I think the U.S. has has been slow to react, uh, you know, very slow to react to a number of things that did great harm to our economy. Uh, you know, uh, great dislocations in and, and, and our labor force, uh, you know, massive theft of IP. You all know the story very well. Uh, but, but now that we have started fitfully to react, uh, you know, these October 7th, 2022 uh, sanctions, uh, other measures the Trump administration took, some continued by the Biden administration, you know, the Chinese are now uh, saying uh, openly that, uh, you know, economics is, is a domain of, of conflict, economics is a domain of warfare, uh, that they have to build their supply chains and use uh, their consumer markets in ways that build leverage over the rest of the world. You know, that it's not so much about uh, economic growth anymore, if at all, it's about who has more economic leverage. Uh, and the Chinese have built positions of great economic leverage from uh, the pharmaceutical supply chain to, uh, you know, to the EV supply chain, as you mentioned, uh, you know, and and again, I think it's it's been a mistake. I mean, you know, to um, you know, we're we're going to move to a situation where we are more dependent on the Chinese EV supply chain. They will weaponize that, and that's to my point. You know, this is not a country looking for uh, floors or minimizing tensions. This is a country looking for leverage. This is a country looking to struggle with us. This is a country that thinks that, that, that over time they have the advantage and they will keep building points of advantage.
0: Great. Um, happy to take other questions. Oh, sure. One over here.
3: Yeah, Thank you. I'm uh, Venkat. I'm visiting Fulbright scholar from India in George Mason University so uh, you know this whole question of floor is intriguing to me because uh, invariably the chinese would see the americans as uh, you know determining where us would cooperate and where us would us would not cooperate and uh, therefore i you know so i, I just want to ask uh, is is there a need for a floor to be created number 1 because in the process of creating this floor you are acknowledging you know, the growing Chinese presence. And uh, most importantly, I would like to know, you know, Rick's uh, opinion that is this floor, you know, more geared towards building a larger coalition to contain China? Because I think that's the only way this floor is going to, this floor concept is going to work. I don't think, uh, you know, one-to-one bilaterally is going to work, it's only going to strengthen China.
4: So
0: so thank you for the question. Maybe I could um uh sort of package the question a little bit because we 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 kind of did already answer the question of do we need a floor and both had weighed in on that. But I think we were also talking about um stabilizing deterrence in different periods, right? I think we're talk I think Rick is talking more about the current period, and I think Dan was talking more about projecting more into the future once we have those capabilities. What would happen? So it might be useful if either Rick and Dan want to weigh in on, like, what do we need to do between now and five years from now when we don't, for it, hypothetically, as hypothetically when we don't have the capability we need between now and five years from now, what do we need to do if we're facing a cha- China that is, as Dan and Rick, I think you're both on the same page, a China that is more willing, more risk-taking, more willing to use military force, more willing to think about leveraging crises for its advantage, what, what happens in that space?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm, the more I hear us talk about a floor, I mean, the more I remember, I, I used to work on Arab-Israeli issues for years, and we used to always talk about window of opportunity. And I, I, w- I once thought, so what, what does that even mean? I mean, we, you go in a door, not a window. Maybe that, maybe that was the problem at the beginning. Um, so maybe floor is kind of the wrong way of looking at it. Look, I think in a way, I mean, where Dan and I are converging on a lot of these issues, to be frank, is that, you know, you, you negotiate from a position of strength. I mean, you, you, you can choose to use negotiating channels for a variety of purposes, but they're not a goal in and of themselves. And that's why I think it's, it's useful to frame this by domain. Um, I think in the, in the security and sort of regional stability realm, you know it's absolutely true that you have to build both hard deterrence you have to advance the the process of building Taiwan's asymmetric and whole of society defenses you have to build out the regional architecture and make sure that it's it's doing things and not just saying things and then you you that puts you in a position of strength with certain channels in the economic realm it's absolutely true that china's uh, state industrial policy and this concept that you transition away from an investment-led growth model in the property sector to one that is much more derivative of new technologies in the EV and ba- you know battery and clean energy sector. I mean that that is going to create massive overseas um, dislocation and oversupply and all new frictions that have to be managed and therefore you need a comprehensive strategy of building your own strength in industrial policy you need a trade strategy that includes a market access component in the Indo-Pacific region and i think that's one area where the administration has not been very successful but you do still need channels to the chinese side to explain what you're doing explain what you're not doing and manage what is still a 750 billion dollar bilateral trade relationship whether or not we like it in its current form and so you know, I think there's a common thread in all of this, which is that you, you, a floor is not the goal. Um, a floor is, I think, a euphemism for using negotiating channels from a position of relative strength for a clearly defined purpose. And, and maybe if we look at it that way, the honest answer here is that the administration hasn't been successful in every domain because they're doing more of the foundational pieces to build that strength initially but in other domains i would say
1: there has been some modest success well i i think you know if if i i think times ahead will be difficult you know to to quote xi jinping <laughs> and and we need to dare to struggle as well uh uh to quote xi jinping you know i think everyone has to quote xi jinping now you know it, it's uh uh, Xi Jinping thought. Uh I think some of the things that Rick described the Biden administration doing are right in the um, you know, in 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 that realm of they are not being afraid to struggle. I mean, these institutions they're building up, uh, some of the economic actions they're taking, uh, you know, deterrent posture, although, you know, there there needs to be more uh, in that in that area, look, it's it's critical. It doesn't ha- the one the other thing I would say is it doesn't have to be far into the future when, when the Chinese uh, reverse themselves and don't see us as as kind of begging them for floors and deton. I mean, one thing you know, I I actually think the Chinese very much are supporting uh, Putin and and they're they're just having it both ways. You know, they're they're bucking him up diplomatically they 're doing all kinds of things uh, right below the threshold where uh, and even maybe above the threshold where sanctions could be enacted if we really looked uh, more carefully uh, things like the air, air, aerospace industry and so forth um, so that 's one area you know if if the United states um, and NATO really succeed in on, on their own terms in that theater, for example then China in in a short period of time might start to think again about whether or not the United States is as weak and in as much decline as they thought we were. That's the kind of calculation I think we need to get to. Uh, You know, undermining Chinese attempts to coerce, uh, you know, and and as they say, uh, evoke psychological terror in the Taiwan populace, undermining that, Uh, you know, I think would go a long way to showing China that uh, we meet our commitments, uh, we are going to meet our commitments, uh, we are going to struggle too, we are going to struggle precisely at the time, as Rick described, uh, that Xi Jinping is facing difficulties. I think this is precisely the time to create more problems for him uh, when he's feeling less secure at home, such, such that he will have more reason to try to stabilize things. But we have to, you know, we have to dare to struggle. That's that's really the, the slogan that we should take up in order to get to that uh, place of, of of some stability in our relationship.
0: So in some way, Dan, you're saying Xi Jinping is right, China has to do a struggle and the United States has to well, do a struggle.
1: Yeah, he started it. Okay, <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> um, with that, I do want to make sure we give our online audience uh, some opportunities. Brian? Um, yeah, so one
1: question is, how do third parties fit into perceptions in Washington and Beijing about putting a floor in the relationship? So, you know, for the U.S. perspective, how do allies fit into that? Uh, And and from China, how do countries like Russia uh, or some of its other partners fit into their calculus?
2: Well, I I can offer a few thoughts on this. I mean, one, let's, let's go back to last August and the, the speaker's visit to Taiwan, you know, I think there was a, when you look at the, the cross-strait issue right now, I think, you know, the Biden-Harris administration has been trying to build up um, the hard aspects of deterrence. And this has been very much a partnership with, with President Tsai and the Taiwan leadership. But when that, when that event occurred, Um, it wasn't just the hard aspects of deterrence that were important. It was also the very slow and deliberative process, working with third parties, working with other governments, to to signal publicly to Beijing that there was a common interest in peace and stability in the cross-strait context. And that, that diplomatic effort, I mean, it does have some real, albeit subtle, deterrence value. But, you know, the flip side of the coin was that many of the countries who we were working with to negotiate those statements, um, they, they didn't want a U.S. that appeared reckless, that appeared to be triggering crises for reasons that were not strategic. And so I think that that that's a good example of where third parties come in. They can play a very important role in signaling to Beijing that this isn't just a US, U.S.-China problem. It's a global problem. It's a problem that would have immense impact on national economies and different uh, uh, macroeconomic considerations, even for countries in the global south who may think they don't care. But at the end of the day, those third-party voices are a critical component, secondary component perhaps, of the overall deterrent effort in the cross-strait context. And that requires uh, an enabling condition, which is the perception of responsible management of the
1: relationship. you know, I, I think third parties play play an enormous role, and, and so many uh, are are asking the United States to to do more, to, uh, you know, to contain China's expansionism, to establish a favorable balance of power. You know, AUKUS, uh the trilateral with Japan and South Korea, uh, some of the new movements in NATO and the EU, uh, extremely important, extremely important over time to show China that this is Uh, they will not succeed in what they're trying to do in trying to undermine a world order that has uh, been of great benefit to to many of these countries. We do have to be very careful, though, in terms of our language. Um, You know, when we start to seem like we're seeking a detente for detente's sake, or we start to um, uh, chase China around for meetings and so forth, it does signal uh, two things to allies at times. One, uh, that those who are on the fence... Uh, are now uh, seeing the United States kind of uh, move off a um, a more realistic and uh, hardened policy, and therefore they might have an excuse to do so as well. So we we really need to toe the line and be careful in changing our language from um, you know competition to detente, changing our language from decoupling to de-risking, because it's tough enough to build these coalitions to begin with. We don't want to give anyone the perception that we're not sticking to our guns uh, on on those policies.
0: Great. Thank you. Uh, I do want to collect two final questions from the audience here and then wrap it up and do the final poll. So if you have a question, raise your hands. One here. And then I think I saw one in the back for a while. Hi, Lydia from Brunswick Group. I just wanted to Understand, um, how should we consider the evolving U.S. politics, um, in this debate proposition, especially since Rick, you mentioned this is a long-lasting kind of competition relationship. And Dan, you mentioned that it's very important to strengthen coalition. But how will our allies uh, look at our, um, internal, like, political scene? And, you know, how will that play into, uh, this proposition?
4: <clears throat> My name is Samar Chatterjee Safe Foundation. Um, i I guess uh, the relationship between China and the United States is a relationship between two big bullies, you know. Uh, United States has been since the Second World War at least and maybe before in South America. Um, was a big bully, uh, and the Chinese have been historically, but there was a period where they were subjugated by the Western powers and so on. So but now that after China, Nixon's visit was a clear indication that China wanted a change in relationship with respect to Soviet Union, and therefore they were using the United States, and the United States was using China against the Soviet Union, as well as India. But that was the, uh, because India told United States, please don't visit China, don't create a relationship. However, this rocky relationship should continue unless it leads to a third world war, because it appears now it's not going to be the third world war between United States and Russia. It's probably going to be United States and Russia and China unless U.S. changes its policy and woos one of them out.
0: So, sorry, did I hear a question there?
4: Uh, yes, I, I don't think <laughs> there is a solution other than keep bullying each other and finding ways, because you've got to live on the same earth, so you cannot keep fighting. You've got to come to some agreements, and, and Russia, uh, China knows that there okay. is Thank not you. going to be just pick and choose. Thank
0: you. Thank you. So uh, we have, like, oh, two minutes, so pick and choose whatever questions that you may want to weigh in on or not.
1: Uh, the easy question of U.S. internal politics. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, look, I think uh, President Biden is, is correct about um, we have got to demonstrate that democracy can deliver. Uh, it's under threat worldwide. It's under threat uh, by China. It's under threat by Russia. Uh, It's under threat by uh, states aligned with them. And, uh, you know, we, I have confidence that we will will work through our own uh, domestic ills, but we we have got to show, uh, you know, we have got to show that democracy delivers the way that authoritarian governments uh, uh, claim to deliver. And and I think we do have an opportunity here because uh, China's economy is not delivering in the ways that they're uh, you know, sort of going around the world and t- touting to say that, look, you know, the democratic capitalist model still really delivers better than than the authoritarian, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics model.
0: Great. Perfect timing. We have one more minute for the, our final poll. Um, so I think... Um, I think our speakers are actually more aligned than actually arguing against each other. So maybe let's, let me add a, a, a slight adjustment to the poll. So the United States and China are making some progress in creating a floor in U.S.-China relations with man tensions and crises. Let's, let's add that sum in there to see if that changes this poll at all. This is very interesting. So I think most people... <laughs> Agree that um, we're not making too much progress. So I think they're very much aligned with both of you, and I think um, they're all, they also, however, are seeing maybe some hopeful elements of there. So I would uh, commend you for both having a excellent uh, debate and both presenting very forceful arguments. So thank you both very much.
2: I I I call this uh... a. <laughs> I think this is a draw. She changed. She changed the question to be fair today.
1: So it actually come
2: out as a draw. I think. Yeah. I think. I think.
0: And and I'm telling you, we did not manipulate the polls. Yeah.
2: There was there was some rigging here. I'll leave
4: that to the.